News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. And now, an excerpt from the latest single by J.P. Siegel, Coronavirus Blues. Corona, I was walking up by my friend, yeah, couldn't even talk, I could barely hear her, couldn't have back, couldn't hug, couldn't anything, Corona stinks, Corona, you guessed it, you guessed it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Corona, you guessed it, you guessed it, oh yeah. It's FAQ NYC. It's Wednesday evening. I'm Harry Siegel of the Daily Beast and the Daily News in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer of Fordham University not to mention the Grio and the Amsterdam News, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And Alex Brooklyn, who nonetheless is in Manhattan and over Racket Media. Hello. Hello. So we've got a lot to uh, talk about, and later you'll hear Chrissy's conversation with Jeff Mays, who covers Bill de Blasio's City Hall and New York City politics for the New York Times' Metro Desk. And Alice's conversation with Liz O'Sullivan, tech director of Stop Spying, the surveillance technology oversight project about monitoring the virus and monitoring us. But let's start with Commissioner Dermot Shea's remarks today about social distancing policing. I think we have a clip of those. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you, Deborah Lee, for the question, because um, it gives me a chance to address this narrative that that I've been hearing for the last week or two, and I think it's very important that I do address it as the police commissioner. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about disparities, about racist policing, quite frankly. And then it's, it's followed generally by a press conference or, or maybe even a demonstration about how the NYPD is acting. And I think if we step back and be honest here, you know, I think we can all agree what we've seen on some of those videos is incredibly um, disheartening. It's not what we want to see. And it's quite frankly disturbing. Um, when you have a situation, if, if the police is wrong in an instance, whether it's on one of these videos or not, there has to be accountability. I think there has to be transparency. And that's my job as the police commissioner to make that happen. And quite frankly, if, I, if that's not happening, I shouldn't be in this position. We also have to recognize that police officers are human. They are you, and they make mistakes. They're not infallible. So that's the backdrop. But I will push back strongly on any notion that this is business as usual for the NYPD or that this is, quote, unquote, racist policing. I think this could not be anything further from the truth. Let's remember, we are a minority-majority police department. Fact. We make fewer arrests than we ever have. Fact. We make fewer summonses issued, and that's whether it's in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. Our record over the last six and a half years is there for anyone to see in how we police this city with the lightest possible touch. You can continue this discussion regarding civilian complaints, use of force, stops, 
firearms discharges. All of these things are either at or near historic lows. I don't think anyone would say that we're racist when we're delivering food to elderly victims that are shut up in their apartments or when we're playing with kids and looking for having things to do in summer through parks of this great city, which is going on planning as we speak, or when we're visiting the victims of domestic violence, or when we're working with homeless or the mentally ill and bringing them to the hospital. Now back to disparities for a moment. We have issued a small number of summonses, even fewer arrests tied to COVID. Are they mostly to minority members of this city? Yes, they are. And I think you knew that answer before you asked the question. But no one is talking about the disparity of the last 10 homicide victims in New York City. And I think that should be spoken about. Or the victims of robberies across this city. Disparities exist in every facet of life, not just in New York City, but in this country. And it's rooted in much deeper issues than the New York City Police Department. So I would urge caution to everyone now. So honestly, before a press conference is held on a 10 second video of a street brawl in the middle of the day in Brooklyn, in broad daylight, by the way, before it's turned into an agenda for press conference, it is dangerous. And I will repeat what I said, I think it was back in January, where words matter. We saw this in December of 2014 with Officer Ramos and Lou. We saw this with Mia Sotis Familia. We saw it this January where two cops were almost assassinated sitting in a police car in the Bronx. And then the next day, a madman walked into a police precinct and tried to shoot more cops. And now in the last week, we have had death threats on police officers in New York City and their families over 10 second videos where the police officers are dealing with individuals that quite frankly, fight not with the police department, they fight with everyone. They fight with their significant others. They fight when they go to court. They have open gun cases. They are gang members and we expect our police officers to do the best they can. That is exactly what they are doing. So I would again urge caution Accountability is what we must have from this police department. And I, as the police commissioner, will not stand for excessive force, nor will I stand and defend indefensible actions. But I will also not have my police department called a racist police department. Thank you very much. Chrissy, what did you think? Well, you know, the NYPD is a consistent source of frustration for me, but I think I'm just really disappointed in not just the police commissioner, but also the mayor, because I don't understand how anyone in their right mind can stand in front of a group of New Yorkers and say that the NYPD doesn't have a racism problem, a bias problem, an inequity problem, and some structural institution and historical deep-seated issues that are manifesting themselves in the worst ways during this pandemic. It's interesting to me what Shea is saying, which has been the department line throughout the de Blasio years, going back to Braddon, is that the problems that race touches on, he's saying, go past the NYPD. 
And the issue is blaming them on the NYPD. So he starts off with a uh, very blunt and very liberal for a police commissioner condemnation of some of the conduct we've seen on these videos we talked about last week. And then he pivots from there and says, if we step back and be honest, uh, you know, the, this is disparities that exist in every facet of life, not just in New York City, but in this country, and it's rooted in much deeper issues than the New York City Police Department. The thing that grabs me is the police department, its rank and file, are really unhappy about doing this social distancing policing. The unions are going on about this, that it's unclear why they're doing this, what exactly they're doing, and that they fully expect to be thrown under the political bus when any of this goes wrong. So you have a situation in which the police reformers and the police unions are on one side of it, and the department and the mayor seem to be on the other, insisting this has to happen. When I'm talking with my friend Barbie in Italy, who's the uh, Beast Bureau chief there, and she's describing the checkpoint there that the police are enforcing, uh, there's a similar situation in Paris. What's interesting is that's a lot clearer to me in a bunch of ways. Here, it's like you have cops here handing out masks, cops there arresting people in small numbers, but nonetheless, and then getting into fights with them and so on. But it's not clear what exactly they're arresting them for. I mean, anywhere you go, just people aren't socially distanced. They're not all getting arrested. And so the disparities with who's getting arrested, who's getting assaulted are, are painstakingly obvious. But we're not actually having police do things that they know how to do, like set up checkpoints, check identifications, and do that in some sort of routine manner. So instead, this seems to be all discretion. And the result of that discretion are a ton of people of color getting arrested in the usual disproportionate numbers, and then a handful of like really violent and, and presumably from what we're seeing on the video, even the commissioner is saying so, unnecessary arrests. It just seems classic de Blasio, like the worst of all worlds here to me. I found it really interesting. So I think that Shay, unlike uh, other commissioners, is trying to... I don't know, woo the, the liberals. And there has been that party line all throughout the de Blasio, all since Dermot Shea took office, where it's just like, oh, crime is down after six years. You've got to understand this is better than it's ever been. Every time a question is asked about policing, it's remi- reporters are reminded that this is better than it's ever been. It's almost like this Trumpian like fallback line. And after uh, Dermot Shea's kind of 10-minute monologue that started with this condemnation of bad policing. He goes, let's be honest here. These statistics are disproportionate in real life, is what he's saying. Now, de Blasio, after Dermot Shea was done, steps in to make sure he actually uses the term, ah, yes, uh, as Dermot Shea points to, systemic change. Um, Making sure that people know, like, it's almost like he stepped in to clarify. De Blasio is always trying to clarify and soften any factoid for New Yorkers at large to a detrimental degree. But right, um, better policing doesn't make it good policing, right? And I think right, that's no. the piece that Shay is, he's just woefully missing. You know, he's trying to tout, like, oh, we're, we're not just murdering Black and Latinx people in the street. We just might be arresting them at disproportionate numbers. It's like, right, but that still doesn't make it an equal city. And I think this co-signing by the mayor is is just really appalling and gross to, to use just a real base word. So, so Shea's argument, and this has long been the brass of the NYPD's line, 
as he put it, is are they mostly to minority members of the city, the summons and the arrest tied to the virus? Yes, they are. And I think you knew the answer to that before you asked the question. No one's talking about the uh, disparity of the last 10 homicide victims in New York. And I think that should be spoken about where the victims of robberies across the city. Unfortunately, the way these pressers are now, right, the NYPD isn't really having their own pressers the way they usually do. Most of these departments haven't. And so, as Julie Marsh of the Post pointed out at Wednesday's presser, the mayor always gets the first and last word. When these questions are asked, he gives the first answer, then he lets the commissioner speak, and then he answers again. And we're not able, the press, to ask follow-up questions in the way we usually are because these are being conducted virtually. And so de Blasio, who's always been messaging obsessed, now has this incredibly tight control over what information his officials are putting out in ways that are often the case with de Blasio. I think is, is just very counterproductive, but it's a real choke point in what we're hearing from our public officials here. It's going to become a larger issue, especially now that more streets are about to open up. What I didn't realize, which came up today, was that at least, I think, 10 miles of streets are going to have partners where the community boards and the quote-unquote partners are like responsible to staff the barricades and things like that. Because a bunch of streets are about to open up tomorrow, although a lot of people are commenting that there is still no big presence of this open streets program in East New York or in Bed-Stuy. Right. But I think this is, you know, exactly as you said, Alice, this goes back to sort of the quintessential de Blasio MO, which is like, things are done, not fully done equitably or, you know, fully or well thought out. And then we play catch up and make up, but he gets really defensive when people start asking follow-up questions. And so now we have a situation where it's like, we literally have visuals of inequities going on in our cities. We literally have visuals of certain neighborhoods that are receiving services from the city and others aren't. And de Blasio's last word is just like, oh, well, we'll see. And we're doing our best. And I've got it under control. And I'm curious to see what the summer looks like as people, you know, don't have camp, don't have summer youth jobs, don't really have a source of income and how their frustration manifest itself, whether it's directly and might not, the or the NYPD. Might not have an air conditioner, or how long are utilities, uh, like Con Ed, going to be allowed to not shut off yes. electricity? Now that heat is not an issue, like once the winter months are gone and nobody's going to freeze to death, are they going to start allowing the utility companies to like shut off electricity because it wouldn't actually technically put someone's life in danger if they did during the summer months? So there's all that kind of like weird stuff to look forward to well, as well. I mean, I think going off of that, how does a cooling center work in the era of a pandemic? You know, I mean, I think New York has relied on cooling centers for people who don't have air conditioning or, you know, some sort of relief. Cold but we can't showers. Ever, I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's what we're doing. I mean, again, this brings us back to what we were talking about last week with the subways. Like, how many people did we just not really think about used the subways for heat in the winter and for some air conditioning and a little bit of relief in the summer? How many homeless New Yorkers, how many just like kind of wayward New Yorkers did that? And I think we're seeing that a lot more than than we realized. Also, now they can, of course, just back to the presser, now, of course, he has control. You get muted. As soon as you ask, they'll tell you at the beginning, they're like, you know, for time's sake, reporters are going to have one or two questions, and then they'll mute you when 
when you've asked enough questions. And de Blasio will scold you if you try to, like, get in two questions in one. Well, to be fair, as someone who's been running a ton of Zoom meetings, I do love a good mute. (laughs) (laughs) The minute you ask your question, I'm like, all right, that's it for you. (laughs) So I will say, I'm going to side with de Blasio on this one, Alex. (laughs) Whoa, I think he'll be happy to hear that. So that's a perfect segue into Chrissy's conversation with, uh, with Jeff Miz about de Blasio and message control. Hi there, this is Chrissy Greer. It's FAQ NYC. It's Tuesday, May 12th. <laughs> uh, I don't know what day it is these days, but I'm with Jeff Mays from the New York Times. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, how you doing? Don't feel bad. It's, it's kind of a little confusing these days. Yeah, I, I never know what day it is at all. And I've always mixed up March and May, April and August. So I'm really all over the place. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've been following some of your fantastic reporting. And I want to talk to you about some of the stuff that Mayor de Blasio has been mentioning about opening up New York. It seems as though New Yorkers are getting restless and have just kind of decided, you know, now with the good weather, they're pretty much over sheltering in place. What are some of your thoughts on the mayor's plans to reopen the city? And what are you sort of seeing as a reporter? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. The mayor said the other day that the earliest the city would reopen is probably June. And the city right now is tracking a few indicators of how many new coronavirus cases they have, how many people are hospitalized for those cases, how many people are on ventilators in the ICU. So they're tracking these recognized measures to determine when it might be safe for the city to open. But, you know, there are these just these big looming issues for New York City. Um, You know, the summer is coming up Mm -hmm. and, you know, the mayor is part of budget cuts. Uh, The city uh, is expected to see anywhere between seven and seven billion dollars and ten billion dollars of revenue loss. For example, they canceled the summer youth employment program. Yeah, we talked about that on FAQ, which is worrisome because so many of those kids rely on money, not just for themselves, but to support their families. We also know crime is down when kids have a place to go. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's looking like camps are going to be closed. You know, I know my son's camp is not going to be open, at least physically this summer. So, you know, there's a lot of big questions of like, what are New York is going to be able to do this summer mm-hmm. when it's 90 degrees outside, the sun is shining, all of the programs, camps are canceled. It could be a really rough few months coming up. And, you know, the mayor was asked about that earlier today and said that they are going to be unveiling a summer plan for families and children. So we'll have to wait to see what kind of solutions they come up to for this issue, which is going to be a major issue. Right. When when the mayor says that we'll reevaluate reopening, what other institutions is he thinking about that are under his purview versus some of the fights that we'll see him wage with the governor as far as reopening? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the schools is is the interesting one. We know about the fight that went on between the mayor and the governor over whether schools would actually stay closed. So, you know, the mayor has said that September is the date that he's targeting to reopen schools as parents let out a collective joy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think that gives time to kind of figure out, you know, how to do this. Now you're having this sort of Kawasaki-type disease that you're seeing among some children. So there's concerns now about going back to school, how will that work? And then there are just all of the 
difficult issues in the city. So how are people going to get on the subway? You know, right. can you can you socially distance on the subway, for example? How is the MTA going to work that out? The MTA is suffering from massive budget shortfalls at this point because, you know, ridership has dropped 90 percent. So how will the MTA operate well? How would you keep people spaced out? Will people feel comfortable getting on the subway? I mean, there's just so many unknowns at this point. And, you know, this, the city's never faced anything like this in you know, the last 100 years. Right. And we know that the NYPD seems to have not gotten a consistent memo as far as how to enforce social distancing. What's the mayor and what's the police chief saying about that, since it seems as though it depends on your zip code whether or not you'll get arrested or politely handed a mask? Yeah, I mean, shout out to my colleague, Ashley Southall's been writing about this. There have been some incidents where people have captured videos of police beating and arresting people roughly. And it all started, they say, with sort of social distancing violations. And I think this is an issue that a lot of advocates raised when the mayor announced that the NYPD would be doing social distance enforcement is that there is a history between communities of color and the NYPD of these sort of interactions, some of which, as we know from near recent history, have been tragic interactions with the police. And so that's kind of borne itself out a bit. You know, you've seen some really high profile incidents. Other communities are complaining too. You have the, the Orthodox community complaining that they, they're feeling over-policed as well. So, you know, it's a difficult spot to be in because clearly the social distancing has helped. The question is, how do you enforce it? Are different communities being enforced differently? You know, some people have raised the issue of crowded parks downtown versus people standing around in neighborhoods of color and how the police interact with that. So, you know, recently, the other day, the mayor announced that they were going to hire some civilian people to enforce social distancing. I think that's a way to try to relieve some of the questions that are coming up about whether this is a law enforcement function, mm-hmm. you know, whether law enforcement should be enforcing what is basically a, a civil order. Right. I mean, I, I was very confused as to why it needed to be the NYPD and police officers with guns enforcing something like this. Right. Yeah, that's that that is the major concern. And certainly, you know, those videos that came out were were not helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, one officer and in, in one incident was, you know, put on modified duty after he was shown slapping one individual and, and leaning on his neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a difficult question that the mayor could no longer deny that there are these disparities. Also, the statistics show that those being arrested for social distancing violations or, you know, more black. Right. Overwhelmingly uh, so. Yeah. Overwhelmingly black. And, you know, that's been a theme, unfortunately, in this pandemic is that it's exposed a lot of existing disparities, whether it be in healthcare, whether it be in employment um, and jobs, you know, who are the frontline workers, you know, who cannot work from home, um, who has to ride the subway regardless of whether they are are cleaned or not. So, you know, these are big issues that are going to, you know, could be an opportunity to address a lot of these issues as the city looks to reopen and rebuild. Right. And so in line with trying to combat coronavirus and figure out when we can open the city, I saw that the mayor appointed two new physicians who are in charge of contact tracing and I think monitoring something else. Do you know much Uh about that? 
yeah, I think there, there was a bit of a dust up. The mayor took contact tracing, which is when, you know, someone has the virus, health officials normally go and, and contact people that that person has been in, in, you know, close contact with and may have transmitted the virus to, to kind of try to get them to quarantine themselves, self-quarantine or sometimes mandatory quarantine in order to, to halt the spread of the virus. You know, that's going to be a big factor in whether the city can reopen. So traditionally, that function has been done by the city's health department, which has a stellar national reputation for using contact tracing and dealing with uh, STDs and HIV and using those tools to prevent the spread of those diseases. And what the mayor has done is he's taken that function from the health department and really transferred it to the Health and Hospitals Corporation. And they are going to be heading up that effort. And so the mayor has named a few people to kind of head up that effort. The question people have is, you know, why make that switch now mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of the pandemic when time is of the essence in, in getting this contact tracing program up and going? Uh, you know, it's kind of no secret that the mayor has not had the greatest relationship uh, with the health department, you know, even dating back to the Legionnaires outbreak and the Ebola crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some concern that moving that program will A, slow the contact tracing effort, and that B, it it is a program that should be with uh, people that have expertise in that particular area. You know, Health and Hospitals is is a healthcare delivery corporation, whereas the health department is charged, you know, with monitoring public health. Oh, goodness. Well, Jeff... I don't want to keep you too long. I so appreciate you contextualizing this. I I think that we'll see a lot more in the upcoming weeks and more head scratching as to who's in charge and why. Um, But thank you so much for joining us. Um, Is there anything that we should be paying attention to this week um, as far as the city, the mayor, the governor are concerned? Yeah, I think we should be looking at how the state is reopening. You know, there there are portions of New York state that are going to be, you know, have limited reopenings. Uh, and we know, unfortunately, the mayor and the governor have not uh, <laughs> done a good job of getting along and communicating. And they've had a couple of spats during this uh, mm-hmm. pandemic. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how the mayor's plans to reopen, whether he runs into the same problems of, you know, having to uh, deal with the state uh, being superseded by the governor. So you know, people are getting antsy there. You know, it's been been a couple of months indoors and with the nice weather coming up, they're going to want everything to be done right. as well as possible to get them back outside. Right. Wow. Well, listen, continue to stay safe. Thank you so much for joining us on FAQ NYC. Promise you'll come back and keep us updated on things. And good luck with camp. My pleasure. I'll be <laughs> back. Thank you. OK. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. That was Jeff Mays from The New York Times telling us all about what we need to know about New York City possibly reopening. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Can I sing it? Yes. Stop. In the name of tech, before you break our society, think it over. Mm-hmm. Harry, shouldn't it be stop in the name of tech before you break our internet? Think it over? No. If we before break you break our privacy laws? Before you break our... I don't know. I don't know. I Stop think Harry got it. Before you break how comfortable we are in the internet. Listeners, we'll, we'll leave it up to you to judge what the correct answer is. But here is Alex's conversation with Liz O'Sullivan talking about 
all of the uh, tech concerns that our public health safety measures are raising. Hello, this is uh, Alex Brooklyn from FAQ NYC, and I called up one of our favorite guests, Liz O'Sullivan, the technology director at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, because in our new normal, I started to wonder, with all this chasing positive cases and in the future we'll have contact tracing and we'll be following up on everybody who may or may not be infected, isolating certain people if they need help, and finding out who they've been with and where they've been, I wondered, could this possibly cause some problems in our future for our privacy? How does it overlap with surveillance technology? How does it overlap with surveillance capitalism? I figured Liz O'Sullivan would have the answer to a lot of those questions. So Liz, hi. Hi, Alex. Hey, what do we need to be afraid of in what we're looking at of our possible new future, including a pandemic with what seems to be so far no vaccine in sight? It's a very good question, and I think there are a couple of things to worry about. Um, what we're seeing in a lot of the proposals that companies and, and our government and various governments around the world have been looking to do to, to try to fight the virus, what we're seeing happen is essentially an expansion of surveillance capabilities that already exists today. And that's coming both from private enterprise like Google, Apple, and their Bluetooth API and private companies like Palantir, which is typically a national security company, and through the government themselves. And we for years have been fighting to try to get better privacy regulation in the United States, laws that would protect companies from profiting, um, essentially profiteering off of a lot of this data collection in the face of a crisis or laws that would protect people from disproportionate law enforcement surveillance and deepening the inequality that happens in, in our over-policed communities, especially communities of color and, uh, you know, other communities like the sex worker community as well. And so, you know, under the guise of protecting people from a crisis, just like we saw happen after 9-11, people and the public are typically more willing to sacrifice privacy which is exactly what big tech companies are hoping will be the case such that they can, you know, collect a, a ton of data that can help them inform their product decisions and grow and, and, and make more money with this veneer of safety. And so that's kind of one of the, the main things that we're tracking right now is, uh, is the effect of all of these new tracking devices in the face of a question. And that this question is really important is, do they work? And there's really not that much evidence of them working and successfully preventing the growth of the virus and the spread of it um, at this moment in time. What kind of tracking devices are we talking about? The the most common uh, one people are talking about is this API that involves Bluetooth beacons. Essentially, it just seeks out other devices that are equipped with the same uh, setting turned on such that if you spend a significant amount of time near someone, then it will record that interaction and then store it on some sort of server that it's not clear yet where that server lives or who has access to it or who owns it. And then, you know, after the fact, if you're diagnosed, then this system can go back in time and say who you've been near. And in some ways, this is a privacy preserving technology, but what we're seeing is that it's not enough and, and governments are pushing very hard to make this 
identification uh, available. So that means connecting it back to some way of, of knowing what your name is or, or where you live. Um, we're also seeing governments push to have this data combined with GPS location data. And this would make a very, very powerful law enforcement tool, especially if you think about it in the hands of companies that handle our national defense, like Palantir, you know, the temptation to combine that data from the goal of just being health forward or health first to being something that really can influence and impact human behavior and freedom of speech. That's very tempting. And I don't see any regulations or any restrictions that would prevent that kind of dual purpose data aggregation. And What are we seeing in New York City as far as it being mandatory to maybe hand over? Will it be mandatory or are they talking about it being mandatory to say like hand over your cell phone if you test positive for COVID so that they can see who you've been with? Or is it just right now all on a voluntary basis? So for the Bluetooth beacons in particular, Google and Apple have said, you know, that this will be opt in only. But there's real concern about the ways that this becomes sort of assumed mandatory, even if it's not explicitly or legally mandatory. There are lots of positions of power that can influence somebody's willingness to participate in a program like this. For instance, if you work for an employer who requires that for you to get hours or for you to come back to work, uh, that you have this app installed, there's nothing stopping that employer from doing that. You know, religious leaders have the same ability to influence behavior that could require people to have the app installed, again, in the name of safety in order to gain access to their religious communities. And so what we'll see, unfortunately, is the same thing that we always see, that these tools, these surveillance tools get disproportionately deployed into low-income families and communities of color and are already most vulnerable segments of society, leading to greater health inequity and all of these things done, you know, again, uh, with the public good in mind. And is there any kind of like attempt at regulating this? Because I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about scaling back any kind of surveillance since the pandemic hit. So you're right about people being more willing because people seem pretty afraid. So has there been any attempt at introducing regulation to this situation Well, there are some rumors uh, floating around about New York state-specific legislation, but just recently, some Republicans in Congress proposed COVID-specific privacy regulation, or at least it seems like it's directly related to the outbreak. Um, And this law is very business-favoring. It's not very strong. In fact, it explicitly allows entities to keep the data after the fact. Um, So once the crisis is over, they can just, you know, turn that into ad tracking or ad targeting. Um, So, you know, again, like, it's a pretty dire situation when we've been fighting for years and years to have just some basic privacy regulation in comparison to the Europe, European Union's privacy regulation, which is very strong and very consumer protective. We don't have much here in the United States. There are going to be some attempts to try to do this, but you know it, it's difficult because anytime you start to collect data, that data becomes immediately available for subpoena by entities that the federal government by, you know, could be even ICE that could request this data uh, with a warrant. And there are also some attempts to try to get around some regulations that require warrants, even in those cases. So again, it's a treasure trove of data and that great deal of power that whoever's collecting the data gets to keep. And there's not a lot of precedent. So like you said, if ICE has access to the data, then 
you know, even though there are like ad nauseum assurances that if you come in to get tested for COVID, it is not contingent on your uh, status as far as citizen. Um, But what happens to the data, even if what happens to your blood work, what happens to all the data that's recorded uh, during this crisis, even if in New York City specifically as a quote unquote sanctuary city, we're not going to immediately inform ICE what happens to the data if it can be subpoenaed by ICE. That's that's something I didn't think of before. Speaking of the medical records, how does this possibly interact with an erosion of HIPAA laws and protection mm-hmm. in, in that arena? Yeah, it's a great question. And one of the first things that we saw come out of the Trump administration uh, when the crisis hit was that, you know, the regulators... Uh, publicly stated that they would be willing to kind of look the other way around HIPAA violations as long as they were in pursuit of curing or conquering the virus. And so even the laws that we have in place are sort of sticky or flexible in some ways. But it's important also to remember that, you know, HIPAA is not this strong catch-all fortress of legislation that most people think it is. In fact, um, you know, the P in HIPAA, I grew up always thinking that it's a for privacy, but what it actually stands for is portability. And that just means, you know, being able to transfer records in a, a standardized format um, and things like that. And yes, HIPAA does provide some degree of health privacy, but this data is a perfect example that uh, most people don't know your health data can be used to target you with ads. So whether that's you having taken a pregnancy test or contracting an STD or having a hereditary disease that you'd rather not disclose to your employer, you know, there are myriad ways that these details could leak in the form of just, you know, programmatic advertisements that the wrong person could see. And just to wrap things up here, thank you so much. Uh, you always shed light on the darkest corners of my worst fears for a future dystopia, but I love it. Um, just like what, so you mentioned regulators before. What do our listeners and New Yorkers and Americans and everybody, what do we need to look for? Like, who are the regulators? What can we do? Can you just leave us with a little bit of advice and, you know, how, how to, how do we, how do we deal with all this? Absolutely. And the one thing to take away from this, the main, you know, hope is local politics. And, you know, we were in New York City, which is local. It's a small town, but it's also a, a place where legislation can inspire other states and even the federal government to take strong action. And we saw that happen with the CCPA or the California Consumer Protection Law that uh, was modeled after the European Union protections and is very strong and was passed in California and, and is basically the template for strong privacy legislation in many other states. So what we need is COVID-specific regulation to come from New York City so that we can be leaders in this space um, and that we can demonstrate that this health data is exclusively for solving the crisis and not for the profiteering of any big tech executives or you know, the, the furthering of income inequality and, and all of the other inequalities that we see in New York City. So what we really need is support from your listeners. You know, come find us at stopspine.org and uh, volunteer or get help us uh, work with your city council people to encourage them to, to pass or to, you know, propose strong regulation and your, your state senators and the local government here is the perfect place to start. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I always find even just understanding the issue, which often as a as a tech layman, I don't, but even being able to understand it and like talk about it with other people who only have a vague idea of what we should be worried about is also super helpful. Thank you so much. As always, it has been a pleasure. My pleasure. F-A-Q. Young J.P. Siegel is one of the many artists whose home time during this crisis is yielding incredible masterpieces. Originally, this person did not want us to use this song, but through the magic of bribery, yielded. And now, Coronavirus Blues by J.P. Siegel in its entirety. Enjoy. Corona, I was walking up by friend, yeah. Couldn't even talk, I could barely hear her. Couldn't have back, couldn't hug, couldn't anything. Corona stinks. Corona, you guessed it, you guessed it, yeah. 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 Corona, you guessed it, you guessed it, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You guessed it, oh yeah, coronavirus. I was walking right by my friend, couldn't even talk to her, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was walking right by my friends, couldn't even talk to them, could barely hear them, yeah, yeah. Corona, you guessed it, corona, you guessed it. Corona, you guessed it. Corona, you guessed it. You guessed it. Corona, you guessed it. Corona, you guessed it. You guessed it. Yeah. You guessed it, right? You really guessed it, right? I can't believe you guessed it. Coronavirus things like everyone, yeah. Yeah. It's awesome being home for school. But not seeing my friend is like drool. Coming out into the sky every day, yeah. FAQ NYC is brought to you by Harry Siegel and Christina Greer. Special thank you to our guests this week, Liz O'Sullivan, the tech director of Stop Spying, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, and Jeff Mays of the New York Times. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. Our producer who mixed and mastered this episode is Adam Kamara. We're usually brought to you by NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but we're coming to you during this pandemic from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. And a very special thank you for the Coro-O-No-Virus song, courtesy of the one and only J.P. Siegel. Stay safe.